1979, a small town young lady, a mother of two kids, just 23 years old, decides at an army party entirely randomly one evening to join a skydiving course in Agra in India. Unknowingly, that evening, history was created. Rachel Thomas became the first Indian woman to compete for India in a skydiving competition in 1987. In 2002, after 23 years, Rachel ended her career when she died from 7,000 feet over the North Pole. Yes, you did hear me right. 7,000 feet over the North Pole. And this was a record too, because Rachel became the first Indian female to skydive over the North Pole. During her career, Rachel has completed 650 jumps in 18 countries. She's won multiple awards, including the winner of the National Sports Adventure Awards and is a TEDx speaker. In 2005, Rachel was honored yet again by the government of India with the fourth highest Indian civilian award, which is called the Padma Shri. So I am thrilled and honored that Rachel has joined us today to share her story seldom told about who knows, her skydiving experiences, why she did this crazy thing, and much more. So welcome, Rachel, and thank you for joining me on Stories Seldom Told. Good evening, Smita. It's such a wonderful thing to have uh, you you to call me call me up and you know plan this whole interview. I was thrilled, and it's such a beautiful platform. I've been looking at your stories and reading through your stories, what you've done on other people. And you brought out such beautiful facts about people that it's amazing. It's really amazing. Uh, about myself, I'm. Uh, I was born in Chitranjan, uh, which is a border sit, uh, border town between Bihar and Bengal. It's where the east of India. East of India, correct. So it's part of West Bengal, but it's the uh, like it touches Bihar. So it's the last bit of uh, West Bengal. But it was very important because that's where our electric uh, uh, engines were made. Our locomotives were made way back when I was born. So I was born in a very small town, like I said before. And I was a very simple girl. And for some reason, uh, the kites, the eagles, and the big birds, um, we, I never saw any airplanes in that small town, but I saw these birds and I always, uh, you know, admired them because they never would come down. They were just there, you know, going round and round and they were just flying and just floating. And I wanted to be one of them. So it was my dream to learn to fly. And as you know, Calcutta is a place where lit it is for known for its literature. Uh, people love there are big book clubs. There are a lot of people who have the, love, love music, dancing, all kinds of art. But nowhere you will find, you know, uh, learning to fly or any kind of adventure sports as such coming out of How old were you, Rachel, when I'm just visualizing this little girl in small town Chindaranjan looking up at the sky and you're talking in the late 50s, early 60s. I'm trying to give context. I'm trying to help us all visualize. You were a little girl of what age? I would have been uh, maybe eight or ten when I started dreaming this dream that I wanted to be you up want there. Yeah, I wanted to be there. I want to be one of the birds, uh, and I thought, you know, okay, they don't come down, and I can, I can be there all the time, just watching the little things down below. So I just wanted to be one of them. 
Um, then for some reason, I was hardly in class 10. I was uh, I was the last batch of doing senior Cambridge. And my mother met, uh, my father was in charge of a church in Lilwa. We had moved from Chitranjan to Lilwa, which is just one station off from Howrah. Again, another railway colony because both my parents were with the railways. And um, my mother met an army officer because my father was in charge of a church. And she thought, oh, he's the last available boy on the earth. So she decided to get me married at the age of 17. So with a law, I, I was, I cried, I howled because I wanted to study. I didn't want to get married so fast, but it happened. Whatever got you were, planned. You were the only child. I'm just trying to get context to this because, um, you know, it, it, we also have to understand for, for the listeners and, and ourselves that we're talking, we're talking in the 60s and life was different in India those days. Uh, now things are far more modern. And yes. parents are more accepting and inclusive um, of, you know, when their children should get married and so on in the large context. Um, yes. But those days, um, they wanted to do the right thing by their children. And they yes. felt, ah, you marry an army officer, then you're safe, you're well looked after, you've, your husband will have a good career and so on. Really, my grandfather was a doctor in the British Army and my grandmother lived in, in Kerala in a massive bungalow with a car and things like that. So she was very well known. And my mother used to cross her house every day to school. So she had this idea, if because his name was Captain Itichiria. So she had this idea that if I would marry a captain, Oh, I'm going to have the same lifestyle like him because she was from a very small place. I don't blame her for anything that she did for me. But isn't me. that interesting, though, Rachel, this idea, you know, because the conversations that we have on the story seldom told is very much about our narrative, our life experiences and how they then impact on the decisions that we make. And, and what you're saying is that it goes generationally. So your mom, your parents specifically your mother, because of her life experiences as a child, she says, oh, Captain, yes, that sounds wonderful. And to her, her unconscious bias, her implicit yeah. positive yeah. unconscious bias is that Captain in the Army means big deal. This is yeah. fantastic. She, it yeah. could, That Captain could have been the worst person in the world, but it's not relevant. This was about, oh, my God, I have arrived. Captain in the Army means fantastic. So when somebody came from the army, I'm assuming it was a captain, your way, she thought it was the luckiest thing that could have happened to you because of her unconscious biases. That's so true. That's true, so true because uh, my grandmother lived in real, real, uh, she was, she lived in a real posh style, you know, I mean, in a small town like Mavelikara in Kerala to have a car and to have a horde of servants and all the luxuries. Those days it is, exactly. Those so it would be maybe in the 1940s, right? To yeah, nearly, nearly 100, 120 years back, I'm talking about. You know, right. so nearly over 100 years. Because if my parents were alive, they would be 102. So I'm talking about much longer than that. And she saw this while crossing to school every day. You know the first light coming in my grandmother's house and things like that. So she 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 did what was best for me. So well, she thought it was best for you, but this is what we yeah. do, don't we? Um, 
all of us, you and me included, we yeah. have our influences, our unconscious biases influencing us. And then we think we're doing the right thing by our children or by our colleagues or our uh, friends or whoever it might be. But yeah. yes, continue, please do. So, so I got married and uh, uh, when I was, uh, I was going to write my senior Cambridge in December, I was already seven months pregnant. And uh, I had to, I, I used to take a local train from Lilwa to Chandanagar, an electric train. And I did my exam and I got, I got very good marks. I and, love you. Yeah. So I had my my son in February. So that, that, so then the, it gave, there was a break in my studies and the whole system changed. So I had to do plus two and then get to do my graduation. And that again, I thanked my mother because she felt bad that, you know, I couldn't continue my studies and my sister had gone ahead of me with her studies. So she got all the forms and she made me sit and study, you know, even though I was a mother of two kids. So my mother did play a great role in my life, you know, um, and she was always there for me. Um, so ever since, as you know, that I, I that you, you shared uh, in the introduction that I was married to an army officer. Yes, I was married to a paratrooper. And I. it was in the month of April, we were in the paracenter mess at Agra, where I happened to be in a group where this French lady who was married to a, a Sikh officer just, you know, said, it's very sad that no women have joined the course. And I just, you know, in the spur of the moment, I just said, can I join? She said, yes, you can come tomorrow morning at 5.30 in the morning. And she gave us the location where I had to reach. And there were two more ladies in that group who decided to join. So those the, those were not the join, days. No, just to, sorry to interrupt, but this join what specifically? Let's be very clear. This is a... To join the first, the basic course in skydiving. So they were running a course of skydivers and they were basically officers and javans who were in that course. There were about nearly 45, 40 of them or more. And so because she said that there are no women and she felt bad because she was an instructor and no women joined from India. So since she mentioned that I jumped into the ring and there were two more women who also jumped in. And so all three of us reached there in the morning it was not the days of WhatsApp and, you know, to, to make sure. But uh, the, the disadvantage I had was I was already a mother of two kids. But, you know, it never, it never uh, it daunted on me. It never came to my mind that being a mother of two small kids, one hardly five and one hardly three, I'm leaving both of them and risking my life going and free falling or to learn to free fall. But I just... I just grabbed the opportunity and there was no turning back from there. So this was way back, I'm talking about in April, 1979, when I did my first uh, basic course of 10 free fall jumps in Agra and got a, my A license. So again, those days, um, really everywhere in the world, when you start your basic course, you do few static line jumps and then you do free fall. Now, static line jumps is a jump where to the parachute bag, there is a line that is attached, which is hooked onto part of the aircraft. So when you jump out, that line has got a certain length. So the moment that line 
uh, the length of the line finishes, the pin comes out and it opens the bag. So you, even if you've not opened your parachute yourself, your bag opens and the parachute comes out. So, but for me, my first jump or all of us, our first jump was a free fall, which is totally unheard of. Will you explain that? Because I want, want us all to visualize. I don't want to assume. So you jump out of a plane. What is the height of the plane? So the height of the plane was about 4,500 feet. Okay. And my first first uh, first jump was my first flight, uh, where uh, everything looked on the ground looked like ants. Like oh, hold on a minute, hold on. What do you mean your first flight? Was that the first time you'd got on a plane? Yeah. You are kidding. So, yeah. so there are two things going on here. You have never yeah. got on a plane. You've traveled by no. train, by bus, by auto by whatever land yeah, 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 transportation yeah. on the yeah. ground. You've yeah. only been sitting there from the age of eight and so, looking up at the sky, yeah, looking at the kites and the eagles and saying, I want to be one of them. That's true. Now you are 23 years old and you are on a plane for the first time in your life. That's true. So in those days, if you, Smita, if you think of, you know, uh, you know, we all went to Kerala to from from to see go see our grandparents or our family. So from Calcutta to go to Kerala, I mean, nobody even dreamt of going in a plane. You know, it was it was the normal train. It was a three days journey, four nights journey, and we'd reach home and very excited and have a good time with our cousins and come back. Uh, every summer we would do it religiously, but you know, the thought of going by plane never even came to our mind. You know, so the first, when I was did my first jump, so it was my first flight. So there was a cap, there was an officer who was sitting next to me, who's no longer alive. I just held his hand so tight, so tight that he, he when, we, when we landed, he said, look what you've done to with your name to me. I said, I'm sorry. Okay. So I was so scared. And now comes the surprise for you. I flew at the door, uh, so my uh, the instructor pulls out a, a, a safety pin, you know, like the, it's called the, you know, the pin for the, the Ultimaster. So it's a start ticking. So it's in five seconds, it, the parachute will open. Okay. So she takes out the pin. And before that, she's already told me that it's time for you to go, you know, and she takes out the pin and she shows me, I've taken out the pin. It's time for you to get, you know, go jump and go out. So I'd lean out and come back in, lean out and come. And she screamed her guts out and finally I managed to jump out. But I flew faster than the plane. Whoops. And I went and hung from the strut of the plane. So this is a beaver. It's a fixed wing aircraft. So I'm hanging from that, being Superman flying like a bird, you know, with the plane. But because my hands were all sweaty and, you know, like, you know, it was wet, I slipped and like a baby, I fell through the air and I, I opened my parachute or it opened itself, but it happened. Okay. And then, of course, I was very happy because then I was flying my parachute and I landed on the ground and I was thrilled that I did my first jump. So it didn't end there. I did this for three jumps. Every Pause a minute. Pause a minute, Rachel. We need to... We need to absorb what you have just said to us. 
The only thing that I have in common with your story is I grew up in Calcutta and we went by train to the village in Kerala in the summer. There it ends. I can visualize that. But now I'm visualizing you age 23, for the first time in your life, you've gotten a plane, which in itself must have so many emotions in your head that there is, there is this instrument that is up in the sky, you know, this, 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 piece, this piece of metal and you're looking out and you can see the land below. That in itself is, is inspirational and incredible and, and amazing and moving. And then you're literally almost pushed out attached to, with a two parachute agreed and I, I shouldn't be laughing because I'm just trying to visualize you hanging on to the side of this beaver plane a, a bit like Superman in the movies for those of us who've seen the film and anyway and of course you don't have a cape that Superman has you just <laughs> have, you just have whatever you're wearing and then finally your sweaty hands let go of that plane because it can't help it it slips off yeah. And you're suddenly on your own. Yeah. And then the parachute comes out and you land. Tell us a little bit more about fear we've got. You've explained the absolute, complete terror, fear that you felt when you held on to, 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 the, uh, to the hand of the person. And of course, the fact that you held on to, to the plane and the fact that your hands were moist with sweat is all fear. But what other emotions did you have? I was I was totally scared. You know, I want to do it, but I was totally scared. So, so this continued for my first jump, my second jump, and my third jump. And my third jump, I refused to leave it to go. I just held it for dear life. You know, I just didn't want it to go. I just kept there. It was very tight. So again, Mrs. Shamsher, Chantal, she's a French lady. She pushed me from the plane down and she, she stooped out and she pushed me down with full force because she knew if she wouldn't do it, my parachute would open and the plane, it would come into the plane, everyone would crash and die and it would be a massive accident. So when I reached the ground, she stripped me. She literally, she couldn't be bothered, you're an officer's wife or you're a woman or your, you know, there are javans around or anything like that. She didn't take me to a corner and she didn't, you know, she didn't uh, give it to me. She just in front of everyone, she just let me have it. You're not coming back tomorrow. That's your last jump today. So I was in tears and I hate to hear the word no. You know, for me, no doesn't exist, you know. So I was crying and of course all my postmates, the officers and um, the other other women told me, go and say sorry to her and ask her for one more chance, you know. So when I went and asked her for one more chance, she explained to me about her fear and what she went through on her hundredth jump when she lost her best friend and what she went through. So. So she said, all these guys that you see there, they all have fear, but they don't show it. You, you showed it, but there are men also who go through it. And so she explained to me, you're going facing the tail. You're not going facing the, the rotor, you know, the front portion of the 
the plane, you're going to go the other way around. You're going out the other way. And she explained to me that you're going to go into a somersault and you will recover by making a good tight body position. And that day fear was broken. So it is a question of breaking that fear. And then there was no turning back. So let's understand this idea then. Uh, because, I mean, not all of us can be skydivers or will ever be skydivers. But this idea of fear, uh, we all have fear for one reason or another. How is it that, what is, try to understand. So she explained the story of her losing her friend. She explained the story of the, the, the physical aspects of just the plane and you and the parachute and all of it. And you were able to break the fear. What was what was the ingredient or the understanding that helped you break the fear? I just I just wanted to prove myself that I can do it. You know, that nothing is impossible. And well, you I'm could going... have done that the first time, the second time, the third time. So yeah. why did you not do that then? And what was different the fourth time? Yeah, I, I got the ultimatum. You know, I'm, I, I will never be able to skydive. I'd never be able to learn to do it. And I'd never be part of the course. So that that hit me somewhere that I'm going to be thrown out. And I've always been good in my studies. I've always been, I've aced in everything, whether it's on the sports field or anywhere. So for me to take that no was a bit uh, hard. So I said, I'm going to do it. I'm going to try it. I might have said 10 Our Fathers and 10 prayers. And and I just jumped out. You know, and I just how was that, the fourth one? Oh, that was beautiful because I just knew that I, I, even though I would go for a somersault, if I made a good spread eagle position, which is the basic position, I'd come out. And I really came out beautiful. I came out stable. She was very proud of me. So I always say sometimes the worst student can be the best. So, you know. It's really what I'm learning from this is that Things are so bad and you think it's, it's not going to get any better. And yeah. it's about, it's about self-belief though, isn't it, Rachel? Would you say? Yes, it is. It is. I, I think, uh, yes, it is totally self-belief and, and determination, both, you know, that you, you want to do it and you want to have it. So when you want to do it and you want to have it, there's nothing that is impossible. It was a dream. It's my dream. So it was a dream that I wanted to fulfill. Dreams, like Dr. Abdul Kalam very beautifully says, dreams are not something that you only see it, but it's dreams that, you know, you fulfill it. Who said then, that? Abdul Kalam. Dr. Abdul, Abdul Kalam, Kalam, yes. The, yeah. the president of India was. Yes. He's passed away now. Yes. I, 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 love, I love his quotes. So I always look at, I always take, try to take some quotes and I always use it when I speak to kids in school. So it's not something that we see in our sleep. Dream is not something that we sleep. Like I saw those uh, eagles and I dreamt to be there. But it is something that you have to go out and fulfill it. You know, the day you, you go out there and fulfill it, the dream is fulfilled. You know, you have made it. Okay, can you can you share another story with us, Rachel? Okay, so uh, from uh, I'll just I'll go in short and brief. So after doing my ten jumps, I can I could not think of uh, uh, you know stopping. So I had to find ways and means because in India there was 
no opening for skydiving, nothing. And then you've got to remember this was 79 and women did not come into the forces till in the 90s. So there were no women in the in the army, in the air force, or anywhere. So there was it was impossible, next to impossible to skydive with the forces. So, but I had to look for openings, and I managed. So I did demos with them, uh, unheard of. That I was part of the demo team with the army or with the air force. So somehow I managed to. I sometimes I really wonder how did I manage, but you know I managed. Then from there was the next, I want to start representing India. So I wrote a letter to Rajiv Gandhi. And who was the Prime Minister of India at the time? Who was the Prime Minister of India then? And if you believe, I just went to my drawing room. I sat on my sofa. I took a piece of white paper and wrote by hand. I never even read it. I never looked for spellings, nothing. I just folded it, put it into an envelope. Inside, I had written Honorable Prime Minister, etc., etc., and I had addressed him. But outside, I just wrote Mr. R. Gandhi, and I wrote the address. And I think there also I made a mistake. Instead of uh, seven race course, I wrote five race course or something like that. But it got to him, and I got a telegram to come and meet him. So he gave me uh, the PM scholarship. I was the second Indian girl to get the PM scholarship. I went abroad to America, trained, bought my parachute, did everything, came back and started representing Indian competitions. So that I did a couple of years, couple of times. But then since I was not getting regular practice in my effort, because people would do thousand jumps minimum under a coach, under a trainer, and then come for world competitions. Here I would just come and do at the side few jumps and try to imagine that I can get an award. So then I realized it's not going to happen. So I moved from there and I became, I trained to be a judge. So I became India's first international judge and I started judging, judging world competition. I wanted to be there where the skydivers are. I wanted to do some free jumps. I just wanted to do jump, some fun jumps with them. So I trained. You were judging other people who were skydiving. Yes, yes, yes. But you you get to do something called a drifter load. That's the first jump in the morning, just to test the wind. So you get a free jump. Okay. So I so I looked at ways of means how to survive. You know. So from there again, I judged about three. Uh, to four international competitions, world competitions, world championships. And then again, I came up with against a wall because I was not judging in my own country. So they said, since you're not judging in your own country, you cannot straight, straight away come and judge internationally, which is correct. So then I moved and became a delegate. And then I went and learned how it is uh, the International Parachuting Commission is run, what happens. And I brought it to India. So I said, we are not ready to have a competition in our country, but we are ready to host a commission. So I bid for a, co a, a, a commission and I bid negative, I said. I know my 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 bid may be expensive than the other country. I know you have to take a flight and come to my country, whereas you can drive to Ireland, okay, from Europe. 
Uh, I know it's a strange country where you've never come before. So it was everything negative that I bid with. But give give me a chance to so give us a, give us another story then of this this idea of because what we are exploring are stories of resilience, stories yeah. of unconscious biases. Yeah. So so this resilience of doing this commission all by myself because nobody was there, and doing it perfectly, and even managing a jump on the other side of Taj Mahal was all records that I created for the country. But after doing all this and doing so well and earning money and giving it back to the Aero Club, the next year I'm not a delegate. I was, my name was taken away. But my thing was, I will go for it whether I have to pay for it myself. So I made sure that I went as an alternate delegate without being nominated. You know, so I wanted, I, I've always been a fighter. You know, I've always been a fighter. I never did anything wrong, but I'm going to fight for my my place over there. So I did that. So in so in like that, I did a many more events. So really coming back to resilience, 84, 85, my marriage broke. So those days, you know, to say that you're divorced was very difficult. You know, it was not an easy thing to tell people you're divorced. Even How old were your children say, at this point? Uh, um, my son was about 10, 10, 11. My daughter was about 9. Yeah, very young. They were young. And I I thank God that my mother and my sister was there to give me support and help me and, you know, be there for me. Because I had to keep going for training and other things. But... To lift my head high and walk in Agra, the place where I was, you know, was difficult. You know, the friends... Well, Agra, that, just for the context of our listeners who do not know India, is known for the Taj Mahal. Yes. Other than that, it is a very small town. Yes. And also, it is a cantonment we're living in. It's a one-street town, the cantonment where we go shopping is just a one-street town. So if you want anything, you go to that one street to get the good things. And at the back, at behind the, the main market, you get the normal groceries and things like that. But you're sure to bump into some of your friends, some of your... How was that, that, Rachel? So you're a single mother of two little children. Everybody in the, in the town, in the, within the army cantonment, knows that you are divorced and you're a single mother. And society in India, those days... To some degree, even now, but especially those days, it would have been the odd thing, you know, oh, single mother, taboo, divorcee, taboo. Um, how did you yeah. manage? Much more than that, Smita, it's sad that, you know, every, all the blame is put on the woman, you know, everything is on the woman. So I would turn around and talk to my best friends. I said, were you under my bed or were you in my room? to know the truth, what happened between me and my husband, that you've decided to support him and put me in, in the doghouse, you know. So my best friend, I would ask her this. I said, people with whom I'm working in school, because those days I was also a teacher. So in the school, there were a lot of happening in school. And others would tell me, Rachel, your best friend is talking against you, you know. So, you know, I've gone through all that. So I would ask her, that were you there to support him and 
put me, you know, that I am the bad person, you being a woman, you know. So I, I, I've been through that, but I just decided to lift my head high and walk straight. And today people acknowledge me and people have seen my character over the so many years, who I am. I'm not one of those so-called people they would want to put me into, you know, and say things about me because I, I lived, a, lived a very straight life, you know. So, it, but in those days, it was very difficult, even when you went to government offices and people would ask you, Where's your, what's your husband doing? I said, oh, he's in the army, he's in the field. Because, you know, the moment you they know that you're single or you are separated, their thoughts go in different directions, you know. It's, it's totally different directions. People now started talking about me too. You know, a few years back, it is me too, you know. I at least didn't have to experience Me Too, but I could feel that Me Too happening around me, you know. I it's could feel it. Because it, it's about patriarchy, isn't it, Rachel? And it the is. idea, it and it's not just in India, by the way. Uh, you know, I, I'm sitting here in London at the moment, which is why I'm wearing this thick jumper, because it's cold. Um, uh, and and uh, patriarchy is, is, is everywhere. The whole world. You can, you can go to Bangalore, you can go to Berlin, you can go to to Botswana, it, it won't matter. Patriarchy will will exist and will continue to exist. And it is very much about how we women, despite that, can can continue. And again, goes back to what we said earlier, this idea of self-belief and, and surmount that. But I'm just curious, um, before I ask you life lessons learned, about your two little children, your son and your daughter. They're adults now. Yes. and And... You know, we talked about our nigh unconscious biases, our stories going from generation to generation. We started that right in the beginning and how, you know, it was they, they, it was the right thing to marry a captain because that's what the parents and the grandparents thought was the right thing. I wonder how your children, I mean, obviously you have to speak on their behalf. They're not in this interview, but if they were to look at their mother, what would they say? They were very proud of me and of course, uh, my daughter, she always felt that I made a name for myself. So she became Miss India. She's Kerala's first Miss India, Annie Thomas. How about that? So, yeah. So she wanted to make her name. So my son says, y'all can have the limelight. Y'all can have the uh, page three for yourself. I'm happy with myself. So he he's, he's a senior vice president in a company. So he's also doing very well for himself. They're self-made children, which is I'm very proud of. And they've seen me fighting the battles. They've seen me, they've seen uh, when it was tough, when money was tough, the going was tough, you know. But we always were as a family, you know, even how tough it was. Uh, you know, if someone needed money, we'd all put money on the table. Okay, you use it. When you have it, you can give it back. Don't worry, you know. So that way we were very united and we were very close as a family. You know, we really stood with each other. So I think uh, they and saw those, what I went through. Yeah, those, those lessons will continue, won't they? Because you have taught your children to be self-reliant. You have taught your children the idea of self-belief and about breaking the, the patriarchy taboo. Yeah. Whatever that looks like for each of us. And they will then continue their stories with their children. Yeah. So, 
For example, sorry, Smita. For example, they say, Mom, whatever money you have or whatever you got from after my grandparents sold their house and what I have, my share. She says, Mama, just splurge it. Go on a cruise, do this, do that. We have our money. You do not need to save it up for me or for Annie, you know, and, you know, all my our children. Because when you convert it into dollars, it's nothing. You know, you just enjoy. You take them for holidays. You spend money on them. You know, do things, other things, you know. Don't try to cringe and keep that money for them. So, you know, they, they, their whole outlook in life is very different. And I'm very happy and I th I'm very thankful to God that they are being brought up. They have come up to be such children. And you have to, you have to as my mother would say, pat yourself on the back um, for, for your achievements. But then, Rachel, you know, not all of us can have that strength of character and that sense of self-belief and, and resilience when we are facing all kinds of challenges that all of us do the world over. What, what kind of advice or support or suggestions can you give us? How do you manage your day? Because challenges will continue to come no matter where you are and what you're doing. I feel, you know, I have started going to ground roots. You know, I... I, I will talk to the MCDs, uh, you know, the MCD, the, the woman who's clean the road or sweep the road or something, you know. And I always say, you know, I'm proud of who you are. You know, I could have been born then, you could have been me, you know. So for me, I make want to make them feel important, you know. Uh, so I started have deal, you know, working with people and trying to help people. I'm trying to give back for all what I've got, you know, which by help or whatever way I've got from God and from others. So I'm trying to help others in different ways I can. But let's imagine, because you have the capacity within you to give of yourself to others. And I think that's fantastic and that's remarkable. Um, but let's imagine some people do not, cannot do that. How are they then, do you think? I mean, any any suggestions on how they can manage their challenges because giving and helping others is actually a, a very good idea because you're you're helping somebody else they respect and and recognize and acknowledge that your sense of self-worth increases because of the fact that somebody has needed you and you have supported them and so many things in that in terms of one's own personal emotions it doesn't have to be money it doesn't have to be no money. no it can be something simple i get that it could be just time, and time in many ways is more it's precious. Just smile. It is just a smile. It just say, you're wearing such a pretty suit today." You know, you make them feel. You make them feel important. You know, they're downtrodden. Right. Something really, really small. It doesn't yeah. have to be no, one hour, two hours, five hours. It doesn't have to be no, hundreds no. of dollars or pounds. We're talking about simple. Oh, hello, Rachel. You look lovely today. And yeah. then Rachel, whoever that person person is, yeah. Yeah. feels good. Yeah. 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 And that or makes then us feel good. That's what you're saying. It makes me feel very good. Exactly. Oh, that's I, such a simple, wonderful thing that you're doing, Rachel. And all of us can practice that. Yeah. Because the more we give of ourselves to others, the better that we you feel know, for ourselves. The world is, I feel the world has suddenly become full of hatred and full of being, you know, self, me, 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 you know, that somewhere we've lost the plot, you know, I feel we've lost the plot. 
you know, if uh, you and I have traveled by trains for the three nights and four days, you know, we played Ludo, we played Antakshri, you know, we just had fun. We might have run across the corridors of the train. You know, we've done, we, our childhood was so good, even going back and playing with our cousins, climbing trees. Children nowadays just, you know, they're so lost in their phones and other things that, you know, they've, the total, everything has changed, I feel, you know, and I feel sad that they, they've lost this beautiful planet. They don't even have time to admire a tree or a bird or anything. You know? Stop, admire a tree, admire a bird, look up at the kites and the eagles and yes. dare to dream. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you so much, Rachel, for sharing your inspirational stories. stories I am so happy to be part of your, your talk, your stories. I'm so proud that I'm part of it. Thank you. I am Smitha Tharoor. It is you, the listener, that makes this podcast what it is. If you like this podcast, please do share. If any of you anywhere in the world feel that you have stories to share, please do connect with me on social media at Smitha Tharoor on Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, or on my company page, Tharoor Associates on Facebook. We will be back next week.